0: so just before we jump into the specifics of what we're going to tackle this morning I want to back up and give you the, the broader picture of the last few weeks that have been really important in terms of the series we're in talking about who are we as a community of followers of Jesus as a church who are we what is our identity and so we've talked about actually two elements this will be the third element today of what we're talking about of who we are who God's called us to be both as a church and as individuals as we follow him and so before we get into today I want to kind of give you the bigger picture of how this Of all fits together. So, when we talk about who we are as a church, there's three key elements that all fit together that are a part of God's bigger plan. Uh, One is the first week we talked about reconciliation, then the last week we talked about discipleship, and today we're going to talk about worship. So, let me kind of give you the way this all works together. So, if you're here a couple weeks ago, we talked about that all of human history. All the narrative of God, all through Scripture, all of why we exist is God's master plan of reconciling everything, all of creation, all of humanity. Back to him through Jesus because we have been separated from him, we are unreconciled, and we're not living in a right relationship with him. So, all of human history culminates in Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, so he has power over death to reconcile us, bring us back to God, so we're in a right relationship. So, that means, and we talked about a couple weeks ago, if you've said yes to Jesus, not only are you a follower of Jesus, you are an ambassador of reconciliation. And reconciliation is making what is wrong right and making things to be as they are supposed to be, the way God intended. So that's the first element. That is really, if you want to put a label on it, that is the what of who we are and really of God's mission overall. Then the how is this thing called, if you were last week, called discipleship. And discipleship is the process by which we are reconciled back to God as we become more and more like Jesus. One of Jesus' last and greatest commands is to make disciples, which is to make people who follow me and look like me and obey what I've taught so that ultimately they reach the point of being reconciled to God. So the third element, what we're going to look at this morning, is really so you you have the what, you have the how, and now we talk about why. Why reconciliation? Why discipleship? It's because the third element, worship. All of this is for worship. And let me, I want to take a few minutes before we get into some of the specific passage to talk about the concept of worship. Because when I say worship, all of us, in fact, we could take a poll and we probably have a hundred different definitions in the room of what worship is. In the simplest form to understand what worship is, it's really in our lives, is do we make it all about ourselves or is it ultimately all about God. Worship is about devotion and about demonstration of how great God is, or it's about devotion to ourselves and how great we are. Now, someone's thinking, well, I don't don't really think about how great I am in my life, but really when everything is simplified down to the basic understanding, there are only two objects of worship in the world, us and God. That's it. You can say, well, I worship this or I worship that. No, ultimately, any worship that is not of God is worship of self. It is, because when you and I begin to focus and give our devotion to anything else in this world other than God, what it is, it's an idol, and idols are created to be a better reflection of who we are, and therefore, in the end, it is really a worship of ourselves. And so what happens is our life becomes consumed with self. Self-promotion, self-preservation, I want to make sure that I'm happy, that I have all that I want, and ultimately I want people to like me, I want people to accept me, I might won't even be popular, and so our life becomes about worshiping self. And I think kind of the culmination of that, if you just watch watch any sports, but particularly professional sports, and you will see a a form of the expression, the outward expression of self-worship. Anybody ever seen a football player score a touchdown? What do they do? They get into the end zone and they have any kind of a special dance, or they'll pound their chest, or they'll do this, or they'll do this, and what is that? Let me hear how great I am. Watch a basketball player slam make a nice slam dunk. He'll like roar and he'll stick his chest out and he'll he'll flex like look how powerful I am. Of course, he's forgetting the guy who passed him the ball to get him to the basket so he can make the dunk. But what is that? That is look at me, look at me, look at me, I'm amazing. And one form of worship is, that's our life. It's all about me. It's about attention on me, about happiness for me, about contentment for me, about ultimately using people for me. That is self-worship. Now, the biblical understanding of what God desires in worship and what our lives ultimately should be about is not self-worship, but the worship of God. And it's completely different than self-worship because self-worship is all about us When worshiping, ultimate worship, is all about God. So much so, let me give you a basic understanding. In the New Testament, there's one word that's predominantly used to describe worship, or the concept of worship. It is the Greek word proskuneo. Say that. Proskuneo. Now you officially know Greek. You should feel good after you leave this morning. But the reason I want to give you that word is because it describes for you and I what worship is supposed to be. So it's really two words together. Pros, the first part of the word, means like towards. The second part of the word, kuneo, which is perfect in this context, is the word kiss. We're here on Valentine's weekend. It's the word to kiss. So literally translated, worship means towards kissing someone. And the way that practically worked out, and this is why, see, we're in a Western world right now, a Western mindset. We don't see this as much in the Western world, but you see this many times in the Eastern world, an Eastern mindset, that worship is literally described by this action. You will see this in the Middle East all the time. It's this. This is worship. It's getting on your knees, bending down, kissing the ground towards the one you you have affection towards. Anybody seen that before? Now, we see people get on their knees and kiss the ground that they're glad to be home. But the picture of worship in the New Testament, the picture of worship that God wants us to have and understand, has nothing to do with self. It has everything to do with devoting ourselves towards somebody who's greater than us. It's lowering ourselves to a position that acknowledges somebody's greater than us. It's demonstrating our affection by a kiss that shows our heart and devotion and love for that object of our worship. And that object of our worship is God. Do you see the difference between what you and I can choose to worship, which is self, or what we should be worshiping, who is God? Now I want us to capture that this morning because that defines not only our church, that defines, should define our life. And I want to to walk through this this morning and understand really two elements of worship. There is the devotion of worship, which means I give all of who I am to God, that Jesus is the priority of all priorities in my life. That is devotion. I'm completely devoted to him with my life. And the result of that is the second kind of part of worship, which is demonstration. Which means if I live a life of devotion to God, that he is the focus of my life, that he is the priority, then what happens is when people see me live my life, they look beyond me. They realize that there's something in my life that is bigger than me. That if you and I are living a life of worship, then there's, there's people who are around us, whether they've said it or not, in their minds, they're thinking there's more than meets the eye here. There's something bigger going on than just what I see in front of me. Because nobody can live a life like that only for themselves. And that's maybe a question for us. Does my life cause people to look beyond me? Or does my life cause only people to look at me? One is self-worship. One is the worship of God. God has called us to worship Him. So what I'd like to do is, is just, in fact... If you want to, you can jot them down. But if not, I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes because I want to read a number of passages of Scripture. It's going to be almost like a fire hose. One talks about the devotion of worship. The other talks about the demonstration of worship because this is laced throughout Scripture for you and I in the way that we should live our lives. So the concept of devotion is highlighted in these passages. Going back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, which is in the Ten Commandments, devotion looks like this. You shall have no other gods before me. God is the priority. In the New Testament, Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Then Luke chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And he, the devil, said to him, he's talking to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then Paul also says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is devotion. It's no longer about me. In fact, for some of us, that might be really good news. It's no longer about you. It doesn't have to be about you. It's about God. Which leads to the second part. This is the demonstration. Let me just read a couple of passages of Scripture. Matthew 5, 16. Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Peter two twelve Live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then Romans chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, Though uh, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And Paul goes on and says, You also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What are you and I picking up from that? The ultimate goal or outcome of our lives is to be fully devoted to who God is and to live that out in a way of demonstration so that people around us look beyond us. That is the sum total of why we exist. Now that clashes with humanity. That clashes with our flesh and our sin nature because in our world, it really is all about us. But what I want to do in the next few moments together is is help us to realize we are on a course, all of human history is on this course, that ultimately ends in the ultimate culmination of worship, which is face-to-face with God, giving Him glory, giving Him honor. That's where we're all headed. That's where ultimately, that's why when it says, the Bible says in, in, in Philippians, when Jesus returns, what every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that who is Lord? I'm Lord. No, Jesus is Lord over all things. And that confession will either come willingly or against somebody's will. It's going to be an acknowledgement. Will it be because we're worshiping him? The ultimate outcome of human history is in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. Let me read this passage. I've read this before, and then we'll move into the specifics of, of what I want to focus on. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb That's a picture of a present and future reality of the throne room of heaven where worship is being given to jesus That's the finish line. That's the goal Now we'll talk about a little this morning Now some of us I know when you hear that passage, you're like man I don't know if I want to go to heaven. That sounds really boring I can barely handle 20 minutes of music on a Sunday morning. Are you kidding? For all of eternity, praising Jesus, that's not going to be very fun. It's because you and I have misunderstood what worship is. Worship is not about music and singing. Worship is about a, is about a life that's fully devoted to, to God and who He is. And so what I want you and I to walk through, I'm going to hit on a number of different passages of Scripture. This devotion and this demonstration of worship comes by you and I walking through the process of losing one thing In order to gain something else. You and I have to be willing to give up something over here. To embrace something over here. That ultimately results in worship. And the outcome in our life. Is the answers to the greatest need of our soul. The significance and success and fulfillment and contentment. In ultimately exalting God over ourselves. That's what the human soul desires. Whether we know it or not. But for all of human history. We've been fighting the battle. Who's going to be God? Is God going to be God? Or am I going to be God? So the first thing of this devotion and demonstration of worship is this you and I have to come to grips with that you and I have to be willing to lose the right to make it about us or make it about you in order to gain the privilege of making it about him. Let me read that again. You lose the right to make it about you and gain the privilege of making it about him. Now when I read that, I'm thinking, really a privilege of not making it about me and making it about that's a privilege? It really is. Listen, let me read from Paul's own words about his own life in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. You recall Paul's experience. Paul had lived the life he thought he was supposed to live and done it successfully. It had been all about Paul until he encounters Jesus. And look at the switch. Look at the change. Look at the transformation. So let me read what Paul says of himself. He said, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. It's a pretty bold statement. He was circumcised. So as a Jew, he's circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the people of Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he has the pedigree. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. As for zeal, he persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. But whatever was his gain, he says, now I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Can you imagine taking everything that you've accomplished in all of your human existence and in a moment realizing it's all a loss? Why? Because now he's met Jesus. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You and I get in a handful of verses, Paul's story. He had done it all, he had it all, and then he gave it all away. Why? Because he found something more valuable. Glorifying himself didn't bring satisfaction to his life. Glorifying God gave purpose and meaning to his existence. And if you and I, as we walk through this this morning, there's going to be the tension like, man, worship really sounds like a drag. Worship sounds painful. Worship sounds like sacrifice. Worship sounds like humiliating humiliating myself before God and bowing down to him. I don't want any of that. It's only through worship that you and I find what our hearts want which is contentment and success and fulfillment. It doesn't come in self-promotion. It comes in worship of God. And you and I, if we had a shift in understanding, if you and I knew that what brings the ultimate happiness to us is not being the center, is not being the top, is not being the one that gets the glory, but it's, the, it's those who point to the one who gets the glory. So let me give you this example. I, I like watching the Tour de France. I used to watch it all the time, a lot more when I was younger, when I had more time. It's a long race. It takes like 3 to 4 weeks and it's pretty intense. It's one of the probably the most incredible physical challenges in the world to to ride between 22 to 2500 miles on a bicycle going over passes that are up at 7 or 8000 feet elevation and doing this in incredible speeds. It's just amazing. And one of the things over time in the Tour de France that's been going on for well over a hundred years now, this bike race in France, is that you have, everyone has come to the conclusion understands you cannot win the race apart from a team. I think that in the history of the race, I think one or two people tried to actually go into the race without a team. Not only did they not win, I think one of them almost died. You just can't do it. And the reason is because it is so extreme and so taxing that you have to have a team around you in order to be successful so each team leader has about 15 members on the team and there's a very key role that each one plays and one of those roles is what the french call the domestique which means servant in french and the domestiques know what their role is on the team they are not the team leader they're not there to get the glory in fact they're not the one that's going to cross the finish line and get the yellow jersey and everyone's going to mob they're not going to get that kind of glory but they know they participate in that glory because they're there to make sure that the team leader wins the race. So everything that they do is focused with that end in mind. So when they're out on the road and the team leader is up at the head of the pack or or he's, he needs someone to ha- come and, and kind of lead and, and maybe draft behind, they'll go out and they'll lead and then they'll back off. If he needs water, he needs food, or he needs instruction, they drop way back from the pack and they get next to the team car. And if you ever watch the race, it's kind of interesting. The domestiques end up like right next to the team car as they just pile food and and liquids and all stuff And this domestique every pocket in his shorts and his shirt is filled and on his bike And then he paddles up to the top of the pack, to The uh, the big end of the pack where the leader is and he starts unloading and he takes care of it I mean, whatever it is if if the leader needs to be protected because there's a chase group that's going ahead The domestique takes care of that too. They're all focused on the team leader Without the domestique the team leader never wins the race But the domestique knows their role, that they are the servant to the leader who gets the glory. And they do it beautifully. See, if you and I understood that we're not to be God because we were never meant to be God. We were never meant to be the team leader. Only God's meant to be the team leader. And we took the role of a servant and found fulfillment in that role that it always is about God's glory, that you know when God gets glory, you're participating in elevating that glory because that's the role that God has given you. There's something in that that brings great joy. Why? Because you don't have to carry the weight of the team leader. You don't have to carry the weight of trying to be God. Only God has to do that. See, sometimes you and I get this whole thing confused that we think it's all about the glory of ourselves. And even when we serve God, like doing something wonderful for God. And so we'll, we'll put numbers attached with people's success in ministry or, or historically what somebody led thousands of people to Christ and all these kinds of things. And we'll miss the point. The point is not one person's glory. It's not one person's tagline of how many numbers associated with their ministry or mission or whatever they did in life. It's ultimately that God has the glory. The great missionary and explorer, David Livingston, who was in Africa for quite a long time, was actually a missionary for 32 years in Africa. And in those 32 years, he had one person convert to Christianity. 32 years. You think... Now, if you're, you know, you say, you know, a lot of us, we give to mission. And so we're investing in a missionary. And after 32 years, only one person has come to Christ. Do you think you might waver in your giving just a little bit? Because what do we think? Well, where's the numbers? Where, what are you producing? Is God really using you? And so we'd say, well, is that a failure? No, that's actually a huge success. See, because the one that converted over those 32 years happened to be the chief of a tribe. And because of his influence, over half his tribe came to Christ. One convert in 32 years led to many more people coming to Christ. But on the outside, we say, oh, that's not success. But if the glory is about God's success and about what God wants to do, then we're simply servants to his ultimate mission, to the bigger picture of his glory in our lives, which leads to the second thing. The second understanding of worship in terms of devotion, demonstration, is that you and I lose the right to be first and gain the privilege to be last. You didn't know it was a privilege to be last, did you? It is. God being first, that means that we're last. God is the priority. Listen to these passages of scripture that underscore this reality. Matthew six thirty three. Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Make God the priority, his kingdom, his righteousness, and then all the stuff you and I make the priority, that gets taken care of by God psalm 37 verse 4 says take delight in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart anybody ever heard that verse before we always like the second part i like the desires of my heart but you and i have to delight in who god is first he's the priority or proverbs 3 6 there's another familiar passage in everything you do put god first and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success we like the second part, but what about the first part? God has to be the priority. He has to be the priority in all of our priorities. He's not one of our priorities. He is the priority in our life, in our thought life, in our relationships, in our home life, with our family, in our finances, in our career, in everything that we do. He's the priority. He's the one that calls the shots. And when he's the one that is the priority, what does Scripture tell us? All these things will be given to you. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will make what you do successful. What if he is the priority? This is a biblical principle that runs throughout Scripture. The Old Testament so many times talks about the concept of God being priority, about this concept of first fruits. In fact, it goes back, even back to Genesis chapter 4. Let me just go back and just tell you a story. Way back, almost the beginning of time, we have, we have we know Adam and Eve, and they have some kids, and we have Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, and we know the story is that it's the record of the first murder that happens in time. But backing up a little bit in the story, what led to that? Let me read just a couple verses, verse 3 through 5 of Genesis chapter 4, because you have Cain and Abel seemingly doing the same thing before God, but the result in their life is complete opposite. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of his fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel, And his offering but on cain and his offering he did not look with favor So cain was very angry and his face was downcast now when you first read that you're thinking man God's playing favorites, isn't he? It's not fair. I mean they both brought stuff They brought an offering before god. God should be happy that they're giving him something He should applaud both of them But why does it say that god looked on favor on abel's offering or sacrifice but not with cain? Because of the difference between what they were offering it's clear that what Abel was offering was from the firstborn of his flock, which was a statement that what was best in Cable or Abel's flock was what was given to God. What was the priority? What was best? The cream of the crop, the top end, not the leftovers or the second or third tier, but the first. Whereas Cain's offering was some of the good stuff, but not the best. And God looked at both of their hearts and knew where they were coming from. You can tell that Abel's worship is pure and right before God because he's wanting to give God the best, whereas Cain is trying to make a good showing of it. Let's just make a good showing of it. And God looks right through both of it and says, Abel gets it, but Cain doesn't. See, what that is saying to you and I is what God desires, what brings glory to him, and ultimately what will bring satisfaction to our soul is when he's the priority. When he's first. Not just lip service to being first, but he is first. That's why throughout scripture, even when it talks about finances, it talks about even for Israel when they would come, it said they would always give the first fruits. That's the best of their crop. That's the first thing that they produced. Not like, okay, let me stockpile a little bit and have enough for myself and then I'll give to God. No, it was the first thing that it produced. God was a priority. And the reason it's placed that way is if you and I don't, not just in finances, but all about, if we don't give to God first, we won't give to him last. We won't. We won't have enough leftovers. But when he's the priority, and that's why when we talked about our life being worship, our life being mission, we're not talking about addition. Hey, just add on some schedule things and some time, and just stamp that mission thing like you got it. No, it's called Alignment which is, as my life aligned behind God, his purpose and mission and glorifying him, then everything else will fall into place behind that. Otherwise, if he's not the priority, we will never have enough time or money or effort or passion or desire to give him anything. And that's where if you and I understand worship is about making him the priority, when he's the priority, then everything else falls in the places where it's supposed to be. That's what we talk about. Tithing in the Old Testament many times is referred to as first tithing. Fruits, and I'll, I'll have a message on this eventually. But tithing, ten percent, is the starting point in giving giving of your finances to God. Because in the New Testament, they gave everything; they didn't stop at ten percent. They were all in. They were all in. And I know some people. Ah, I don't tithe. I don't give. I don't believe in tithing. I don't believe in tithing. I believe in giving everything. So if you want to stop at tithing, you probably are safe. Because I've had people. oh, tithing's Old Testament. Let's go New Testament. New Testament's harder. You might want to go back to Old Testament. Just so you know. But it's not about the percentage it's about i'm all in i'm all in what god is wanting to do and giving glory to him then the third thing the third part of worship and devotion demonstration is that you and i lose the right to live a good life but we gain the privilege of living a life for a good god see when our when we switch from self-worship and it all being about us to really worshiping god then what you and I thought was supposed to be the life that's good, the good life that we're going after, what pr- we're pursuing, pales in comparison to the goodness of who God is when He is the focus of our lives. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says, whoever wants to find their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Does that seem like foreign and crazy? If, if you want to truly experience the most valuable, important thing that you and I have, life, we have to lose it. Does that that that's just so opposite of what you and I you and I would think well, whatever is most valuable and most important We should hang on to we should keep safe. We should protect at all costs and jesus says no In order to really find it you have to lose it first You have to give it away. You have to sacrifice it That means if you and I can't give our life away, we will never ever live and so many of us will go through this entire lifetime believing we lived a good life only to get to the end of it and realizing our focus was on a good life and not a good God and we never lived at all. See, because how do we define life? See, when, when if, if we ask the typical person, what is a good life to you? A good life means comfort, finances, living where I want to live, having kids that grow up and are good people, I mean, that's the good life, right? It's having a good retirement. It's having good insurance. It's living in a safe environment, a safe neighborhood. That's the good life. That's the good life as far as how we live it in America, isn't it? That's what everybody's shooting for. But if you and I live the good life and never let go of that, then we never really live. Because if that's the good life, then all of the people who we read about, especially in the book of Acts, were duped. They were fooled. In fact, they're the idiots of history. We're the smart ones. We've arrived. We know what the good life is. But they they missed it because they lived counter to the way that we think the good life is because there was something greater than their life. It was a good God. It was serving something bigger than themselves. What if you and I would come to that place in our life where we realize there's something bigger than living for myself? What if there is? What if this life is not supposed to be about us? It really is supposed to be about God. Then it makes you, makes you take a step back and you start, you start rethinking your priorities, rethinking your decisions, rethinking where you live, the money that you spend. Now hear me. So many people come to me and say, well, are you saying I have to sell my house? I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying you do what God tells you to do. But I know I've watched the trajectory of people's lives and I've watched them take a step back and I've seen it over and over. In fact, I've had people come to me and I've seen them on the back end of experiencing life because they made decisions and I just had conversations with people in between service saying, I want to do that, but I can't because I'm stuck. I'm in debt, I'm owned, I have tension in my life, I can't do it, I can't be free to really worship God because I'm obligated to all these other things. That's where you want to have to take a step back and say, what is really the good life? Who is the good God? I think it's far more simple than we make it. Let me just tell you, they am going to t- talk to you about a couple different people that I know that are friends with uh, that that I've watched this journey, amazing things happen in their life. There's a couple that Kim and I know from from Oregon that we've known for about 10 years now, and when we first met them, if, if you would have said, hey, what, what does the good life look like? They had it. Uh, really outgoing, wonderful people, um, he's successful, he has a successful career, making a lot of money, got re... Uh, reassigned up to the portland area and so they moved from california so they took all the money they had in california and it's like worth a lot more in oregon because it's so much cheaper up there they bought like two or three acres of land they have this beautiful house he's advancing in his career they're making lots of money they have three beautiful wonderful kids i mean they are they are the typical american dream and when, when i started to get to know them though over the first year i realized they were absolutely miserable. Not because there was any strife in their relationship, or because there was any, like, sin in their life that was, like, you know, controlling them. But they started to realize, you know, they were, like, in their late 20s, or maybe early 30s, late 20s. They had attained it. They got what everybody had longed for, and they said, it's horrible. There's, there's nothing to it. In fact, what was stirring in them, they said, there's there's got to be a bigger purpose to all this. And God was using that to stir something in their life. They realized there's a world around us that's dying and needs to know who Jesus is. So this is the, the, the beginning of their journey. And long story short, they, they sold their dream house. They went from a like 3,500 square foot house with three kids to 1,100, foot, 1,100 square foot house. Their kids actually had to share a bedroom. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? And then not on top of that, he went through in his career, as he's kind of skyrocketing and doing well, but he's traveling too much and he can't do as much as he wants to investing and helping people. And so he actually takes a lower position, becomes a lower position with less money and tries that for a while and then they bump him back up because he's doing so well. And he's trying to rearrange everything and and as, as this is going on, they start giving all their money away. They start donating to different organizations. They start giving to individuals. And then beyond that, beyond their money, they start mentoring people in our community. In fact, they start reaching out to broken people in our church who everyone else has given up on. You know, it's the guy who's the alcoholic who's been through rehab 20 times and he's always great intentions. And then he comes out and a week later, he's drinking again. It's that guy. They start befriending people like that in our church and our community that nobody else, everyone's given up. Welcoming them in as Friends. There was one guy in particular, he and his girlfriend, they're just a complete mess. They're trying to make their lives right, but they keep failing, and they invited them into their home, and they allowed them to become a part of their family. They were part of all their holidays and all the things that they would do. They would have them over for dinner just to be friends with them. This is what the trajectory of their life completely shifted. And I tell you this story because Later this year, they're going to be deployed through Foursquare Missions International to go to a little island chain called Vanuatu just off the coast of Australia to be missionaries with their three beautiful kids. That went from 10 years ago, having the American dream, realizing I'm holding on to this life that is bringing no satisfaction. There has to be something bigger. There is. There's a great God who has something bigger for my life. Now in a moment, I'll tell you a little bit different story because I know some of you are thinking, I know what you're saying. That means I have to go be a missionary to serve Jesus to be happy. It's not what I'm saying. You are a missionary right now. You don't even have to change addresses. You are. If you follow Jesus, you're a missionary. Which leads to the next thing. And that is, if you and I want to understand this concept of worship, we have to be willing to lose our right to our own agenda and gain the privilege of embracing God's agenda. It's not about our agenda accomplishing our will. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 12:1 and 2 he says therefore i urge you brothers in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to god this is your true and proper worship do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what god's will is his good pleasing and perfect will the only way you and i know what god desires for our life is when we're a living sacrifice if you and i say okay give me the plan but I'm gonna hold back, I'm gonna see what the contract looks like, and I'll only sign on the dotted line if it works for me, then you and I will never do it. But if we say, Okay, I'm all in, I'm a living sacrifice, then you and I will know what God has desired for our life. And by the way, you and I will only really know what God's purpose for our life is if we understand what God's purpose for the world is. You and I don't have this little exclusive, all right, here's my will for my life, God, you go take care of the world with all those other people. Because they're one and the same, because what God's purpose for the world includes what He purposes for our lives. And if you and I understand that, then we understand that there's something bigger than the agenda you and I come into the world with. When we come through high school and we go into college and we have a career laid out and we have all this, there's something bigger than that agenda that God has for you and I. But are we going to see it? Are we going to open our eyes to it? You're hearing, I haven't said the word too much yet. It's the word mission that's kind of overriding all of this that God is on, that he's invited us to be a part of, that says it's not about my agenda and surrendering that. Let me tell you about one other couple. You're going to get tired of hearing about people from Oregon. It's pretty cool people up there. I don't know why they live there. They need to get saved and move to California, but they're still there, okay? But another couple that, that if Kim and I would honestly, if we tell you, if there is a couple in our life that we look at and said, I want my life to turn out like them, this is that couple, this is the kind of couple I, we look up to and think, down to the core of who they are, because we know them really well. It's like, that's who I want to be like. That I think they reflect Jesus probably as good as any couple I've ever met in my life. Similar to the couple I just told you about, both of them extremely successful in their careers, made a lot of money, wonderful kids that they, that they produced in their life. I mean, they have the, the perfect life. And so they, as well, they've got the house up on the hill in Newburgh, Oregon. They've got all, all of the things that everyone says they should have. And deep down inside, there's a stirring in them. Okay, this, this can't be everything. There's got to be something more. And so they realize, again, God starts getting their attention, opens their eyes to the reality of the world around them, that they've been called to be missionaries in their community and around the world. But the trajectory of their life looks a little bit different than the last couple because they realized they have a heart for global mission. They travel all the time. But they realize God has planted them in their community. And this couple who has all this money... They did one thing that's similar. They sold their house on the hill and downsized. And then as a result, this is what happened. I watched their life transform. Their schedule used to be filled with stuff they wanted to do. Then this is a couple that in our church, in our community, and in our church, did more than any other individual couple ever I've ever seen to fulfill and serve God's mission. They literally were sold out. At some point, I was looking at their calendar. Six days a week when they got off work, they would go and do something that was in our community. They would mentor people in our community. They would actually stay overnight in a shelter with women and children. They would go and adopt a, an apartment complex and help people who, had, who were dealing with issues of poverty. They would welcome people into their home. They would do all these kinds of things. And you know what's wonderful? He's still in construction and she's still in banking. That's what they've been doing all of their careers. That didn't change. But everything else around that changed. Their their city, they're still in their same city. They didn't move to the other side of the world. But everything changed for them. And now they're giving everything away. They're giving all their time away. And when you sit down with them, they are the happiest people you will ever meet in your life. They're full of joy. They're full of passion. They're full of life. Because they're constantly giving life away. And God keeps fulfilling their lives. They're amazing people. Why? Because... Somewhere down the line, they realize my agenda and God's agenda don't match up. I've got to get on God's agenda. I've got to let go of my life, and then I'll really, truly start to live. See, that's what worship looks like, because it's no longer about us, which leads to the final thing, and that's this. Worship means that you and I need to lose the right to put God in a box and gain the privilege of discovering God out of the box. Let me explain what I mean by that. I mentioned earlier, there's only two objects of worship. Self-worship, worshiping ourselves, or worshiping God. That's it. Everything gets narrowed down to those two. See, what happens when you and I begin to put God in a box? Now, nobody says, hey, I put God in a box, but we all have a tendency to do it. We put God through the lens of our life, the lens of our context, the lens of our culture, the lens of our preferences, and we fit Him in nice and neat so that he does what we want him to do safe and contained and he becomes in that box and really what he becomes is just a slightly better version than ourselves that's what he becomes and so really what we end up doing is we're not worshiping god we're just worshiping a better better version of ourselves and because that we worship our preferences our comforts what we want god to do for us and when he doesn't do it then he's not god well no he's not the god in the box but he is the god of the universe but see, you and I have to let him get outside the box. We have to let him define himself because so many times what you and I think is worship is really we're worshiping our own personal preferences. Now, I've, I've, I haven't, you've probably noticed I haven't spent very much time talking about Sunday morning worship because what we do for 20 to 30 minutes on a Sunday morning is one, like 1.00001% of what worship is, but we define it as worship. That's why I even use the term, where do you worship? I am going to worship as though you're not worshiping right now. Worship's everywhere. But see, think about just even the dynamic of a Sunday morning, if you will, for a moment. We describe worship according to our personal preferences. So when we come into a setting like this morning and we'll walk out of saying, man, worship was really good. What are we saying? Usually what that means is we like the song selection. Man, Tim did a good job this week. He picked some of my favorites. We liked the volume level in the room. It wasn't too loud or too soft. The vocalist did such a good job. Man, those harmonies were great. Just really made me worship God more, right? We 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 start to critique what our personal preferences. So at the, in the end, what are we really worshiping? See, because I've come to this conclusion because I've been in church for a long time. I've pastored a lot of churches. And when somebody says to me, "You know, I just can't worship" When we do this song or I can't worship when that person leads or i'm thinking really You can't worship him Because you're a little distracted by them What is worship? Worship has nothing to do with them. Worship has to do with him And if you put god in the box down here and he only works through the lens of how good the worship leader is on sunday morning Then you have sold god way short because even if someone hits a bad note up here, that doesn't affect who God is. Does it? doesn't. God is greater than all of that. Now, when we come together, we want to help encourage and enhance. We don't want to distract from worship. But if all you and I consider worship to be is 20 minutes on a Sunday morning, then we're really not worshiping with our lives. But I want you to capture this. I know it always gets quiet in here when either you're like, I'm done, I need to get out of here, or you're thinking. So hopefully you're thinking still. Let me just read a couple passages of scripture to remind us. God out of the box. I won't read a lot, just a couple. One in the Old Testament, one from the New. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Just let that settle in. The greatness of God is not something you and I can comprehend. He is so big, so great, so powerful, so amazing, so awesome, we can't completely understand it. Yet, I want him in my box. I want to contain him. This is who God is. No, you, you can't do that. He's, he's too big for that. Listen to how comprehensive Paul refers to Jesus, who is God, how comprehensive God is. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, "...for in him all things were created." things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together whoa that's god if you and i will let that settle in for for just a moment let it settle in how big is god how great is god and if here's the key for, for you and I need to understand. Because again, if, if you and I, if we get to the end of the day and all you felt is like worship is just a drudge, drag, sacrificial, painful experience until somehow I die and go and be with Jesus forever in heaven, then you've missed the point. What worship is, is when you and I have a full, somewhat of a full understanding and glimpse of who God is, worship is the result. It's not something I have to do. It's something I want to do. That's worship. It's the, it's the outcome of who God is. And if you and I miss that, then it just becomes obligation. And then you just become driven by guilt and shame and you force it. No, it's, it, again, remember, what is the picture of worship? It is getting on my knees, which is sacrificing what? As I kiss towards the, the object of my affection, which is my love and my passion for God that drives me to my knees to acknowledge he's greater than I am. It's not something that I have to do. It's something that I want to do. And if you and I could get a bigger picture of who God is, worship would be the result in our lives. If you haven't done this in your life, I encourage you, strongly encourage you to do this. And I think God embedded this in the way that he created things, in the way that we see outside of of our planet. So if you have never done this, go go into a, a very dark place outside the city, away from the lights on a really clear night when there isn't a full moon, and lay in a field somewhere and look up at the sky and stay there for a while you'll be amazed at what you see when you'll never see it if you're busy glancing at the sky at night when you're in the city doing your normal stuff around where there's lights you'll see a few stars but when you get away from the distractions and the lights and the busyness and you lay down and you just look at the sky had something amazing happen to me a number of years ago when we did this at hume lake it was a clear night hardly any moon in the sky. We're sitting out on the front porch of a cabin that we were at, just looking up at the sky, just talking. And when I first came out of the cabin and we shut all the lights off, I was like, whoa. I I don't know if I've ever seen this many stars before. But as we're sitting there for about an hour and 45 minutes, the whole time, the whole hour and 45 minutes, I kept seeing more and more and more stars. When I first opened my eyes to look there, the sky looked dark. After an hour and 45 minutes, the sky was bright. And it wasn't because God was like, hey, I'm going to pop a few more stars out there for him. It was what was happening is my eyes were adjusting to see what's always been there. And it was crazy just to look there and, and it's like there wasn't almost it seemed like there wasn't one place in all the sky that was dark anymore. It was all lit up with stars. See, I think sometimes you and I are so focused on our agenda, on self worship, on what we want to do, we have lost sight of who God is. And the reason we struggle with worship, the reason we struggle with mission and we push back on things is we've lost sight of who He is. And maybe for some of us, we don't even know who He is. We have a version of Him that we're hanging on to, but the version's not even worthy of worship because we've put Him in the box and God's saying, Let me out of the box. Let me show you who I am. Let me show you how great I am so that what you'll say is, oh my goodness, of course my life should be devoted to you. Of course everything what I have is you because you are the priority. And when I stand before you someday, it makes sense that everything I have was given to you. Nothing was for me. That I could live a life of sacrifice. I could be on my knees and kiss towards you as a point of my affection towards you. Why? Because it makes sense because there is no one greater than you. See, Paul, When if you read Paul's life, Paul did not... The flipper, the change in Paul's life didn't come because he was doing it out of obligation. He was being religious and a Jew out of obligation, but he wasn't being a Christian and following Jesus out of obligation. It was out of pure passion and affection for Jesus. He did all the things he was supposed to do according to religion, and it was empty. But then something happened in him. He didn't have to do that any longer, but now he wanted to passionately follow God with his life to the point where he gave everything up walked away from what every religious person would say is success. He gave it all up. I'm getting a little excited, okay? I know it's almost lunchtime. But I just want us to capture that because please, I'm gonna, we're going to include the worship teams. We're going to sing one last song. Please do not walk away from today with a feeling of guilt and shame like, oh man, I really got to work harder at worship. No, we need to see who God is. He needs to capture our heart and our mind and our attention and our lives once again. So that when we live our lives in devotion to Him, people look at us and they say, "Whoa, there's something beyond them. There's something bigger than them. There's something greater than them." And I have to know what or who that is, because I want to know who that is in my life. Let's close our eyes as we prepared it to sing one last song. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share something that I did in in, in first service because I feel, feel it's appropriate too as we we go to sing this one last song, Almighty which really is reminding us again of how incredible Jesus is. But as I, even both messages this morning in first and even second, I felt as if we're walking through this that, that there, there could be one or two, there could be 20 or 30, I don't know. But I feel like that some of us are at that place where we know that life has really been about us. And we have been dying under the weight of that. In fact, life has crushed us because we've been carrying this weight of it being all about us. Life has not been about God. It's been about us. And because of that, we're having to maintain our life. We're having to make sure that we're happy. We're having to make sure that we always make enough money to provide. We're having to make sure that we're always advancing forward in everything we're doing and and we're pushing hard and and we're trying our best, but, but the weight is just killing us. It's almost suffocating because what's happened is that we've been trying to be our own God. And even that, we've been trying to be God to other people. And Jesus comes along and he says, oh, by the way, my yoke is easy my burden is light and I want you to hear that today because some of you are some of us are needing to surrender our self-worship and life being about us because it's killing us and destroying us and owning us and suffocating us and be released from that so that when it is about God I no longer have to carry the weight of my own life because my life is found in him. Some of us need that freedom today. Some of us need that peace. We just need to say, God, I'm I'm sorry for trying to be my own God. Would you forgive me? And allow Jesus through his forgiveness that he made possible by his death on the cross to take your and my, our God syndrome and remove it from us and once and for all allow him to be God. Him to be the greatest. Him to be the team leader. Him to be the one that is greater than everything. Him to be the creator of all things, that holds all things together. You and I can't hold all things together. Only God can. So Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, as we once again acknowledge you, Lord, would you lift the burden that we've placed on ourselves of of focusing on ourselves, of worshiping ourselves. And now, Lord, lift our eyes and our hearts and our heads to you once again that it is about you. It is about worshiping you. It is about the freedom of finding life when we give our life away. It is about surrendering the good life to live for a good God because you are good. Thank you, Jesus, in your name.